The mortgage industry never stays still. With interest rates moving, companies changing, and regulation increasing, there's always another story. This is The Principle, where we break it down daily and take a deeper dive into the issues. I'm Christine Stewart, Editorial Director for the Mortgage News Network. Let's pay it down. But first, a word from our sponsors. This podcast is brought to you by PennyMac TPO, the lending partner with the products, people, and technology to serve your customers and help you grow your business in the best ways possible. It's why they say, at PennyMac, greatness lives here. PennyMac TPO is a division of PennyMac Loan Services, LLC, equal housing lender. NMLS ID number 35953. Loans not available in New York. Licensed by the Department of Business Oversight under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act. Conditions and restrictions may apply. Several companies are suing each other for poaching employees and encouraging them to take company secrets and customers with them. But this is not a new problem. So can the mortgage industry finally get poaching under control? This is The Principal. I'm Mike Savino, head of multimedia. Today, I'm joined by Ryan Reister, founder and principal at Reister Law. Ryan, thanks for joining me. My pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having me. So, Ryan, you've you've got some history with this issue, some familiarity. You know, this is getting a lot of headlines right now because of some of the the companies involved firing lawsuits at each other. But sort of walk us through the history here and the fact that this isn't the first time that we've been dealing with this issue. Sure. Uh, you know, I've I've been involved uh, representing the mortgage industry for over fifteen years, and I can tell you that this this long this issue long predates my my tenure in the industry. So it's definitely not anything new. Uh, it's something that you know we see pop up at different intervals uh, based on just the competitive environment, but uh, it's also not unique to to our industry. It's something that we see across the board in in any highly competitive industry, and and especially as markets shift uh, and, and and contract, which is uh, what I think we might be approaching here, is why we're seeing some of this this take place again. But uh, as as you know, it's a highly competitive industry, the mortgage business, and and a acquiring talent, whether it's organic, uh, bringing somebody up and, and developing that talent or finding that talent uh, through poaching or, or other means elsewhere. Uh, it's the lifeblood of, of any sales business. So that's why we see this type of activity, you know, rear its head every so often. And, and we've seen with the, the lawsuits that have surfaced, they're focused on taking customer data, taking customers, taking uh, what's viewed as, as company secrets with them when they go to another company. But is that the the level of the problem or does it go deeper? Certainly if, if you're losing employees in droves, I would imagine that's also a problem for the industry, right? It's a huge problem. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's a quantity problem, but it's also a quality problem. Um, there are, you know, loan officers in particular, you know, varying degrees of, of success, uh, just like in any field. There, there are, there are attorneys that are better at generating business than others. Uh, and so as a company, as a mortgage company, the more top producers that, that you can have on your, your roster of employees, the, the, the higher upside you're, you're looking at. And so uh, that talent acquisition is one thing. And I think that's something that most companies are willing to uh, compete with each other for. It's really, as you hit on it, the, the data that, that's being transferred along with those employees. Um, that that causes the problem because, to varying degrees, companies invest 
tremendous resources in in acquiring that customer data and in building those customer relationships. Um, they also invest a lot in developing their employees. Uh, some, like I said, sometimes the homegrown employee is is the best one. You bring them up maybe from an intern. And and they they work through some of your production staff and then ultimately become a loan officer. You've invested a lot of resources in that that person's professional development. So losing them matters quite a bit, but but it's the data that that really matters because as you see in some of these lawsuits that have that have made headlines very recently, um, you know, they're they're the accusations are that these are active loans in in pipelines that are being taken or being diverted out of pipelines uh, before they maybe even hit hit the uh, the one company's uh, systems. And so there's, on, at a scalable level, you know, you're talking about millions and millions of dollars uh, at least uh, when you're talking volumes of employees moving and, and, and these volumes of data. And, and that's, it, that's even just looking at it as a singular transaction. Over the lifetime of a customer relationship, it could be tens of millions. And, and I'm sure, you know, a lot of loan officers, just as, you know, if, if I were to go to another news outlet, I would say, well, my sources are, are my sources. I'm sure a lot of loan officers feel like those are my customers. I built those relationships. But I think you kind of touched on how some of these companies would push back, right? That it's not, it's not as simple as just you're good at your job. We've given you the resources and the time, and in some cases, developed you to, to cultivate those relationships. Most definitely. That's, that's the a big rub here. I'm not going to say it's the the rub, but that's a huge rub. And and we've seen this manifest itself in other conversations over time. Who's who owns the customer? And and the simple answer is no one owns a customer. The customers are free to go where they where they wish. Um, in practice, most customers I think identify with the individual loan officer, which is where they the rub lies because the companies do invest tremendous uh, resources in supporting those loan officers' efforts to develop those relationships. So the companies are the ones that are investing in the branding, oftentimes are investing in the advertising or the outreach, you know, things, uh, the systems that allow the, the LOs to stay in contact with the customers once, once they form those relationships, that allow the LOs to stay in touch with their referral partners. So that that is a, a rub that's always going to be there because it is the, the sweat equity of the loan officer, the loan officer's uh, Interpersonal skills do matter tremendously, and there's huge value in that. But the companies, from the company's perspective, they see it as uh, dollars and cents that they've invested in supporting that loan officer and helping that loan officer uh, achieve what he or she's been able to achieve. So uh, it does, in a lot of ways, boil down to to that particular uh, sticking point, and that's where these contracts that you see between companies and loan officers matter so much. And the and the devil really is in the details. Um, and unfortunately, I see this all all day long. Um, far too often, in, the loan officers don't spend enough time reviewing the contracts that they're being asked to sign upfront, so they know what what's expected of them. And the companies, quite frankly, don't often spend enough time really drilling down on what's important in these contracts because they tend to either assume. Well, I'll say both sides make some assumptions. Both sides make some assumptions, and it's usually the extreme. Well, no matter what I sign, they're not going to be able to enforce it against me anyway. I'll be able to do what I want. Or, you know, often the company's like, eh, they're not going to have the resources to fight me. I'll just threaten them, and I'll I'll scare them, and they won't be able to, to take any of my stuff. And that's a huge problem both ways, because every once in a while you see it end up in court, 
And then we really do have to parse the language and say, is this narrowly tailored to really protect what matters to the company? Does this overly restrict the employee's ability to work, to go to to go find better employment, better work uh, environment? Um, and that's that's what these things ultimately boil down to: is how well were these contracts drafted? What were the expectations of the parties? And sadly, most of the time, the parties neither of the parties really has a clear understanding of of what it means. Don't miss the nation's largest show for successful mortgage pros. Originator Connect returns to Planet Hollywood in Las Vegas, August 18th through the 21st. See us at OriginatorConnect.com. It's simply the greatest mortgage conference in the known universe. OriginatorConnect.com. And you actually were with the NAMB for a little bit trying to sort of work on this. Why haven't we been able to solve a problem if it's not new? And to your point, there's still this like, well, now we have to go to court to parse this language and, you know, that's costly for everybody. Why haven't we been able to come up with a better solution, you know, guidelines, standards for what is and what isn't allowed? Well, I believe that it, a lot of it is um, rooted in self-interest, as, as so many things are. I think uh, especially on, I'm not going to say especially on the company side, on the, on the company side and on the loan office side, everyone to a degree likes the ability to be flexible have some fluidity in the market. Companies want to be able to recruit, aggressively recruit talent. Um, and, and employees, loan officers in particular, want to be able to move around if they think that uh, there's better opportunity, better resources somewhere else. Uh, they want to be able to move there relatively freely. I think we've seen an uptick in that particular perspective uh, you know, as you know, in the pandemic and as we come out of the pandemic, because loan officers realize that I don't necessarily have to be tethered to a brick and mortar location anymore. I can work from home. I can work from the beach. I can work from wherever I am uh, and still have a very successful uh, book of business. And so I think that's one of the big things that has held back real momentum in terms of an industry saying, how do we get a handle on this? Because deep down, both sides want the freedom of movement. It's It really comes back to that data piece. It's it's the, the 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 people want to be able to move freely. The companies want the, the personnel, but they want to be able to protect their data and their information that they've invested in. They'd love to be able to keep the, the people talent as well, but it's really the data. If you're taking customer data, customer relationships, um, that's that's where the line is, in my opinion, that gets crossed, and then we see companies end up in court. Um, I think there's a I think there's a path forward. I think companies could come together and start to talk about fair and foul, uh, start to talk about um, the elephant in the room, which is nobody really owns the customer. What data do we really want to protect? And this goes back to kind of what I alluded to earlier with the contract language being overly broad and sometimes vague. If you if you read some of these contracts, uh, the confidentiality provision is two pages long, just that section. And it, it's a kitchen sink approach to defining what, what do we think our confidential information entails. That's unrealistic. Um, it's impractical. And that's, that's why you end up fighting in court over what this sentence means, what that, that language means. I think if we're going to advance the ball on this, if we're going to advance the conversation, it really starts with companies saying, this is what really matters to us. This is what we're really serious about protecting because this is what what we value. Um, and this is this is probably a little bit of overreach. I think it, it's 
it's taking a more practical approach than most lawyers would advocate for. Um, I'll, I'll be honest, I'm, I'm probably a little more on the fringe in my philosophical approach. I, I, I take practical lawyering, you know, as a badge of honor. I like to look at the situation, and say, how can we make this work for for everybody? Obviously, I zealously represent my clients, but at the same time, I'll tell my client, listen, that that's crazy. That's that's not how the world works. Um, let's let's focus on the way it actually works. And in this case, when we're talking about employees, you know, is it realistic for you to for your employee to bump into a former client in a coffee shop and not have a conversation? No, especially in small towns all across this country, that happens every day. But I've run into examples where that's the sort of sort of thing that has prompted a cease and desist letter. And then, you know, that to me, that's that's where we get into overreach and um, why we need to have this type of conversation. Yeah, I was going to ask, I would imagine if you come up with some sort of industry standard, that might also be better for the originators, right? Because these covenants and these contracts are entirely to protect the companies and the data that they want to hold. But if we have standards and a better understanding across the board, that might also make things a little bit easier for originators to be able to move around and protect their interests as well. Yeah, you're you're exactly right, and and there's a huge disparity in terms of the um, the number of originators who have uh, the resources to know what their contracts mean to have somebody like me review them before they sign their 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 comp agreement um, or their employment agreement for that matter. Whereas most companies have access to legal representation. Uh, very, I mean, you'll see some that 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 pull their contracts off the internet or whatever, but most of them, you know, if they want to, they'll, they'll get them reviewed by uh, an attorney or a law firm. And so having these conversations would hugely benefit the originator because then they would have a clearer understanding of what the expectations are, what the rules of the game are. Um, And and if there was some measure of uniformity in thinking in terms of if I'm, if I work for ABC, you know, mortgage company and, and I go to work for XYZ mortgage, the the expectations being the same will help the originator you know do their i don't say do their job better but not find themselves in the middle of a one of these controversies between the companies where's the place to do that is it the NAMB or or can an industry group like that enforce some of these cuz obviously they're not uh they're not a regulator with with some of the the abilities that come with that but can an industry group can the industry regulate itself here that's the place to do it, in my opinion. Um, I'm not a fan of of more regulation from a governmental perspective. I think that uh, it's great for um, keeping people like me busy, but it's not great for the industry to add additional layers of regulation. And so, if in, in a situation like this, if you can get critical mass um, of industry participants engaged in the conversation, I think there's an opportunity there to to make headways. Uh, in any type of a, a trade association, it's going to be up to the membership to say that this is important enough to us that we're going to set a standard uh, that we want to live by or that we're willing to live by. And not everyone's going to agree to that. And that's why trade association membership is always voluntary. Um, if people that want to be part of it and want to hold themselves to whatever the standards are in that group will do it. And if they don't, um, you know, there might be someplace else for them that that's a better fit. But uh, but I do think that trade associations are the place to have this conversation. And I think that um, it's a, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that it can become a delicate conversation at that level, 
just because you're talking about competitors engaging in discussions over how they're going to do business and how they're going to, um, let's say, agree to work with each other in terms of their their personnel. So it's it's not without its own sensitivities and um, in-house counsel, if they're listening to this, that some companies are probably getting heartburn going, this guy's crazy. Don't, we don't want to have this conversation, but, uh, but no, that's, that's really what trade associations are for. I've spent, uh, uh, almost my entire career working with trade associations. And, and that's what I love about them is that they're, they're collaborative. They're, um, they're, they can be function as quasi think tanks. And that's what this, that's where this starts is that people getting together at a high level saying, all right, we have a problem. We can spend millions of dollars fighting with each other in court, or we can we can collaborate on this and see if there's some type of a common ground. Uh, again, we'll we'll see where that goes because a lot of times lawyers will get in the way and explain ten thousand reasons not to collaborate with your comp- competition. But uh, ultimately, I, I I'm optimistic. I think that if you had enough momentum built up, you could have this conversation in a productive way in within a trade association setting. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see if these companies realize that putting aside their short-term interests will be good for the industry, which may be good for them down the road. Ryan, thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure, Mike. Thank you. And we'll have your headlines right after this word. This podcast was brought to you by PennyMac TPO. Visit tpo.pennymac.com to learn more about becoming a partner and starting your journey to greatness. Here's your headlines for today, June 13th. We could be headed for some relief with inventory. Realtor.com predicts housing stock will grow by 15% year over year by the end of 2022. That's because of a seasonal boost in listings coupled with builders ramping up production. At the same time, high prices are pushing out buyers and allowing inventory to catch up. Mortgage rates plateaued in May after a sudden spike earlier this year, but that wasn't enough to reignite demand. Rate lock volume continued to slide in May with decline seen across all loan types. Rocket is no longer sponsoring golfer Bryson DeChambeau, a spokesman confirming Rocket is prioritizing his partnership with the PGA Tour over its deal with DeChambeau, who has joined the Saudi-backed Live Golf Series. Rocket is a title sponsor of the Rocket Mortgage Classic in Detroit, and the company also has endorsement deals with other PGA golfers. And finally, homebuyer budgets are essentially flat from last year, up just 0.3% year-over-year nationwide. Declining budgets are a leading indicator that home price growth has passed its peak and will slow in the coming months. It's more proof that growing interest rates are taking their toll. This has been The Principle, a Mortgage News Network podcast. All podcasts are produced by T.G. Kutamperor, Matthew Mullins, and Sarah Woolock. Mike Savino is head of multimedia, and Christine Stewart is editorial director. The opening theme was Status by Jamie Bathgate, and the music you hear now is Glossy by Skygates. You can find episodes of The Principal at www.mortgagenewsnetwork.com, or you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate and review so that others can find us. Thanks for listening.